and welcome everybody. This is Hear Her Sports Fast Track. I'm Elizabeth Emery and thank you for tuning in. In this episode, I'm talking to Christina Vassallo, curator and arts administrator, just named executive director of Fabric Workshop and Museum in Philadelphia. Apropos to this podcast, Christina is also an avid cyclist with type 1 diabetes. She and I met and became friends in Cleveland, where she's been the ED of Spaces Gallery for the past six years. It's so exciting that Christina is moving to such a terrific organization as the Fabric Workshop. Christina is wonderfully energetic and definitely badass, so Philadelphia is lucky to have her. On a personal note, of course, I will miss her very much. This fast track consists of excerpts about diabetes, bike commuting, and bike touring taken from a longer, sprawling recording. And this week's episode is sponsored by Sufferfest Beer, founded and led by female athlete Caitlin Landisberg. Sufferfest Beer is created with ingredients that go the extra mile. Wanting to celebrate her finish line moments, Caitlin was searching for a beer that had great flavor without compromising her autoimmune disease. So she took matters into her own hands and spent years developing the beer that she wanted to see in the world. Try Sufferfest Sweet and Balanced Head Start Stout, brewed with coconut water and Equator coffee, or the FKT Pale Ale with ingredients like black cherry currant and sea salt. Sufferfest Beer is inspired by athletes and adventurers. Definitely check out their website, sufferfestbeer.com, for profiles of the Sufferfest athletes and descriptions of all their beers. And now, let's get right to it and meet Christina. Welcome, Christina. I've been really looking forward to this because we are friends and colleagues, and so it's really exciting that we're going to do an official recording of our laughing conversation. Bring it on. I'm Bring stoked. Bring it on. All right. I do want to talk about calling ourselves athletes or not athletes. I would opt to not call myself an athlete. I would call myself an active person. And as we have sort of discussed offline in the past, I think that is a byproduct of being a diabetic and the age in which I grew up and the age in which my mother grew up, she was also a type one diabetic and she was sort of born in the dark ages of diabetes research in the 1950s. And They had no idea what was wrong with her and they even like operated on her brain to figure out what the heck was going on. And eventually they figured out, okay, she's just diabetic. (laughs) And so I think that instilled in her like a real sort of fear of the it's a chronic condition. Right. And and how to behave and, and what was appropriate and what she would be able to do. And I think that sort of fed into my own life. And as a kid, there was this real anxiety around me, like playing sports. So it was something I never engaged in. And I think the distinction for me between athlete and active person is athleticism has a real like competitive component to it and a rigor and a discipline that I just don't follow. Like I don't have a coach giving me feedback, like, you know, players on a team or, you know, actual professional cyclists. Um, And so, you know, cycling, even though I might, you know, ride a century, I, I don't consider myself to, to be, you know, I'm not competing for anything. It's just so that I can actually reach the finish line, which is a minor miracle (laughs) as a type one diabetic who's had it. I'm 38. I've had it my entire life. So, you know, I actually don't care to get faster in my times, right? Like, I don't care if it takes me 10 hours to ride 100 miles. Again, it's just like this this exhilaration that comes from the people-powered movement, right? A transportation alternative, not, you know, there's also certainly an environmental justice aspect to it, not being so dependent on car culture and everything that comes with that and the machismo behind that too. I mean, I don't know. I'm a little macho, actually. (laughs) 
But again, it's like I'm not trying to win a prize. I'm, I certainly am not being sponsored for anything. In a way, it's like with the work that I do, too, leading an organization that is very socially oriented, it's this idea, I think, of like leading by example. And for me, again, it's not about trying to win something. I think if there was a competitive component introduced to what I was doing, I'd shrink back and just become immediately disinterested in it. You know, it's just like about the way it makes you feel. So what are you looking for in being athletic and be well, in <laughs> being active? <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth, for, for hearing me. Um, well, it all started, and I've put a lot of thought into this recently. It started because, you know, there is an amount of discipline that's required to be healthy with a chronic condition. And I'd always taken care of myself very well. But then once I got further along in my career and started to run, you know, organizations, it became more and more difficult, right? Like I am so enthusiastic about my work, totally absorbed in it, uh, but it's super long hours and it's cyclical work as well, the amount of energy you need to put into it. And I would find for like weeks on end, if I was getting you know, closer to an exhibition or a major project, I was just eating crap or not eating at all, and certainly not carving out the time to exercise regularly. And so back when I was living in New York City, my commute from Brooklyn to Queens to the organization that I was running was 10 miles round trip. And so that's really how I got back into cycling. I always rode my bike as a kid. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to sort of boycott the MTA cuz they're really not making outer borough travel very easy. So I'm just going to ride my bike to work every day. It suddenly became like the zen activity. I would start working out problems in my head on my way to work, figuring out like what the next big step was going to be for the organization. And the more I did it, the easier it became. Like the first few times I did the commute, I had to get off my bike to like go up this little <laughs> hill over the Pulaski Bridge, which I think you've probably gone over. Yeah. It's really not a climb. <laughs> so then because it was part of my daily routine, I started to want to like, you know, just do other routes. And then I went on these like long sort of bike camp adventures and I'd go up the Hudson and ride like 50 miles a day to the next campsite. And then it sort of became an addiction. It was like, okay, I'm going to be traveling for two weeks. I'm going to get a bike that I can break apart and check and take around the world with me. So yeah, I often find myself riding on the wrong side of the street in Australia. And like, <laughs> yeah, it's just become part of my life. You just got back from Greece doing one of those trips with your bike. Yeah, yeah. Tell me what you did, because we haven't really talked about exactly how, you know, how you do these trips with your bike. Sure. Well, I have a Surly Traveler's Check, which is just, it's not a folding bike. It's a regular sized bike and it breaks apart. It's got these really cool S-couplings and it fits in like an, an enormous backpack. So it's like 40 pounds that you've got strapped to your back and you can just check it. And, you know, if you said to me a few years ago that I was going to end up in Greece with a bike that I assembled by myself, I would have been like, you have no idea who you're talking to. <laughs> it's, that is not me at all. But, yeah, I've learned literally how to put together a bike in like a half hour and just get on the road. Like the first thing you do is put the bike together and then just find whatever road that you're about to travel on and do it. And it's really exhilarating. And there's a real feeling of like self-sufficiency as well, right? Being able to put together your own transportation system and just get moving. It's, it's really cool. I'm really impressed because Evan and I just got back from our vacation. We rented bikes, but I mean, the weather was so bad. Mm -hmm. And yeah. You know, I just thought, wow, if our only method of transportation was bikes. Riding in the rain is awful. It doesn't matter. I, okay, so first I should say, 
if you're going to ride 365 days a year like I do, it is all about the gear. It's actually less about the bike and it is more about the gear, like from the fenders to the kinds of gloves that you're wearing to, you know, the stupid looking ponchos that you have to <laughs> use and like also we wear glasses right right riding in the rain with glasses on totally sucks, sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so like I've recently invested in contact lenses which are also kind of awful but yeah I mean I have gone on trips where there is no public transportation involved or car rental it is strictly about like going from point a to point b on the bike and it is miserable like you arrive <laughs> and your shoes are like they're sopping wet and you know you just have yeah. to like take it as it comes dry off and then start the next day right um i recently okay so every year i do uh, a ride from here to sandusky and then take the ferry to kelly's island and camp for two nights and it's one of the things i love about living in cleveland and this year, for various reasons, I had to do it later. I did it in October. Usually I do it in the summer. And I just sort of relied on my sense of like tradition and, oh, this is, you know, just get on this one road and you're on it for like eight hours and then you're finally there. I get to the ferry and it's locked up and there's no ferries leaving from Sandusky. And the sign was like, you know, it's another like three hours to the other place where the ferry goes. And I rode almost entirely in the rain. And I was so annoyed and disappointed that I just <laughs> camped in Sandusky at a really crappy like KOA and then woke up at 4 a.m. in the middle of a lightning storm, broke camp and then just rode the 60 miles back <laughs> so miserable. I just was under, I didn't even check the weather channel. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your diabetes and sort of explain, I mean, particularly since you didn't, hadn't been riding a lot and hadn't been active, mm -hmm. you decided you wanted to commute by bike. How did the diabetes and dealing with managing that as a sort of a more active person, how did that happen? Yeah. Well, I should backtrack and say a couple of years before that, my mother had passed away and she died of complications from cancer, but the diabetes really played a role in the sort of degradation of her body. You know, when a parent dies, you think daily about your own mortality. And I was sort of stuck in that mindset for a good year after she died. And I had convinced myself that I was going to run a marathon with like no training whatsoever. And so, you know, whatever, I just like read a bunch of articles online. I was like, okay, I'm going to, my long runs, I made it up to 13 miles on a long run day. And then it just totally screwed with my week. Like the entire week, I just couldn't get normal. My blood sugars were extremely low. I would overcompensate and like eat too much to get back to normal. And then I'd get too high and have an awful headache. And it was just like, I can't control this. Plus, I don't like running because too many things bounce up and down. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's not the most comfortable experience as a woman. And so anyway, that was sort of in the back of my head. And I was like, okay, don't be a dummy. You've run 13 miles in your life. Like you've proved that you can do this. So you can definitely ride a bike for 10 miles. It's just a different kind of activity, different muscles. And my body reacts differently. And it wasn't until I started cycling over longer distances with more and more hills that I realized like a flat ride of like 60 miles affects my body very differently than, say, a shorter ride of like 20 miles, but with climbs. And I realized that this body is actually built for climbing <laughs> and distance. It's not really built for 
speed. And so I actually do very well on climbs, but I have to make sure that I have those like cliff bars and those shot. I I actually really like the shot blocks because they're easy to open with one hand. They're like gummy bears kind of, but they work really well. Um, And so it's just understanding like what are the tools that I need to take with me and constantly checking in with myself, checking my blood sugar. And again, that's why I'm never going to care if I can do a century and seven hours you know for me like nine something hours is just fine because I have to take the pit stops I have to check in and I have to eat something along the way are you really rigorous I mean do you say okay every hour I have to have x number of shot blocks or x amount of liquid um I have always been very symptomatic so I know before I check my glucose levels that I'm low or that I'm high you just feel different when you're low it's harder to form cohesive thoughts your legs feel a little rubbery. And so like, this is what starts to happen before it's too low. And so that would often sort of be my guide. I'm also very strict about like every hour getting out of the saddle. Otherwise your butt really starts to hurt. (laughs) So that's usually when I take my opportunity to do all that stuff. I recently did the math. I, I did a talk that was very much based in this concept right now that we're discussing. And I had figured out how many times a year I take insulin shots because I'm not on the pump. It's something that I'm not ready to engage with yet. And it's almost like 1,500 shots a year of insulin. And I take it four times a day on average. And then I check my blood sugar levels five times a day on average. So that was something close to like 1,800. Pin, um, you know, I'm a pincushion, basically. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot. And the sort of point of the talk was how does diabetes make me aptly suited to run an arts organization and this idea of herding cats, right? When we work with artists and and I usually don't use that term to describe what I do, but other people do. And, you know, it does require this constant, you know, sort of checking in to make sure that the situation is managed, the exhibition is managed, the 20 artists you're working with, like you have your arms around them and you know what's going on. And that's precisely what having a chronic condition is like too. It does seem, though, that you're more, because I did a little bit of reading about diabetes and athletes, particularly cyclists who have diabetes. And from the articles that I was reading, they're really regimented, like, you know, the hour strikes and they check their blood and, you know, know how much glucose they need, depending on what kind of ride they're doing. And you seem much more intuitive than that. Mm. Well, I mean, I like I start preparing for a century a, you know, a week before in terms of what I'm eating. I mean, the, you know, theoretically, we're preparing for a century months and months before, right? Just in by increasing how much we ride. But like, I will make sure to have something that's starchy and has a lot of protein the night before. Certainly, it's not like today, I'm going to jump on my bike and ride 75 miles or 100 miles. Like It just wouldn't work for me in that way. So there is a level of care that I put into it, definitely. And then especially if there's like camping involved, I'll make sure I have all the kinds of food that I need on me and like tons of Gatorade and all that kind of stuff. You know, I always have like one water bottle that has Gatorade in it and one that has water. And yeah, just making sure that I'm prepared in that way. But Every hour on the hour doesn't exactly describe what I do, Um, but I do check a lot for Mm -hmm, sure. mm -hmm. It really is about getting in the right mindset for sure. And it's about making sure that the days in advance, I'm not going too low with my blood glucose and I'm not going too high either because diabetes results in all sorts of things like blindness, amputation, kidney, heart disease. I mean, I think heart disease is the number one killer of diabetics 
So to make sure that I'm somewhere in the middle, right, in the acceptable range, the days leading up to a big trip, and then making sure that I'm a little bit above that range as I'm actively riding so I don't dip too low when I'm doing a huge ascent and there is just no way physically possible that I can get in my pocket, right, and like eat one of those stupid (laughs) gummy things. (laughs) Do you have any trips planned? I'm thinking of going to to Japan next year as like my next big, because cycling is sick in Japan. And so bringing my bike and maybe meeting up with a couple of friends um, who live in Berlin uh, there. But yeah, so far it's just a kernel of an idea. What's going to be required of the planning? Like what will you do to plan it? Well, okay, that's a really great question because I've never ridden with these two friends who might go with me. They just have expressed a level of enthusiasm around it. And it's figuring out if we're at the same level. I think two of us are and one of us is not. And one of us is a little bit more of someone who would um, like to take her time. And <laughs> when when I'm, I'm, I can be a little ruthless when I'm, on a trip like this, like I do want to get from point A to point B in in a shorter amount of time, even though I said I don't care if it takes 10 hours to ride a century. When I'm on a trip, like I want to see as much as I possibly can. So I want to like set up camp and then go out and explore for the rest of the day. So we're going to have to figure out, you know, we'll have to figure out the shape of the trip. And choosing travel partners you know, is a big deal. It, it really is. Yeah. And you can get yourself into real trouble, too, if you don't pick the right people. You totally can. And actually, I'm glad you bring that up. We're getting off topic from what you just asked, but I tend to ride by myself a lot. I am not part of a cycling group. And I'm actually a very social person. So it's a little weird that in this part of my life, I would choose to do it as a solo activity. But I sort of suffer from not wanting to to drag anyone down, but then also getting really annoyed when someone isn't as strong of a cyclist as I am. And so it is really hard to find a good match. Yeah, so cycling is, for me, very much a solo activity. But I also like to, yeah, it's it's a place where I get a lot of thinking done, too. So maybe it's better that way for me. I really like the solo riding Yeah. for that reason, for yeah. thinking, sort of working problems out. And you're just in charge. You can do whatever you want. Right. Well, thank you, Christina, for being here. It was thank a real pleasure. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah. That was fun. I hope you enjoyed this fast track with Christina. A tiny note that our conversation was actually recorded quite a while ago. Sadly, I didn't just take a vacation. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and thanks to Sufferfest for supporting the program. Be sure to tell your friends about the podcast and about fantastic, strong women speaking up and doing amazing things. Hear Her Sports was launched to increase media coverage of female athletes and women in sport. 44% of athletes are women, and only 4% of sports media coverage is about women. If you have comments or suggestions, call our hotline at 725-BE-BADASS. That's 725-222-3277. That's 725-222-3277. Our design is by the great Agnes Studio and music by the band Goldmines. Till next time, bye-bye. I mean, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are the jam. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, 
This is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with a pro tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!